The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back for another show. It's always a little exciting doing a live show. If you're joining us live, like so many of you do, I thank you for setting aside whatever you're doing and tuning in. Today's going to be a powerful show. My guest is Dr. Lucy Hone. She is a resilience researcher, and you're going to find out what that means. But really, she's going to show us how to better handle grief. I know that just about an hour ago, I quickly jotted off a quick email to someone who had written to me who was just having the hardest time getting over the passing of her husband. And I said, tune in today. You're going to learn some wonderful tools and get some great insights. So while we're going to be talking about grief, resilience has a lot more, can help you with a lot more than simply grief. So Let's just dive right in, and I'll tell you that uh, Dr. Hone is originally from London, and she's coming to us today from New Zealand, which I just absolutely love the South Island where she lives now for the past 20 years. And she trained at the University of Pennsylvania for your master's degree, I believe it was. I haven't even brought her in yet. Let me do that first. Lucy, why don't you just come on in and say hi to everybody? So, um, hello, everybody, and um, kia ora koto, as we would say in New Zealand, in the native dialect of our land. I'm thrilled to be here with you, Suzanne. Wow, that was great. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I love that you had spent some time in my part of the world because I grew up near Philadelphia, where the University of Pennsylvania is. So, so many yeah. happy memories and so much academic stimulation in that city. So, yeah, very fond memories for me. Indeed. And you were working with a, a study to help soldiers in the military, and I have that military background, so some nice collect connections there. But unfortunately, it's, it's another connection that we share that will actually – uh, connect you with the heart to so many of the people that listen to that show. And that's the fact that you researched resilience and thought you understood grief and loss. And then you had a personal loss that took it to a new level. So why don't we just uh, start with telling us what resilience is and then tell us about your journey. Okay. Yeah. Good to start at the beginning. So I first became fascinated by this term resilience, you know, which is 
seems to be the zeitgeist of our time, particularly now because of COVID, of course. Um, but I first became fascinated wanting to learn more about it um, back in 2008. And looking back on that now, I can see that was in large part because of the global financial crisis, you know, our previous world crisis, when it seemed that you couldn't turn on the radio or pick up a newspaper or particularly one of those kind of news weeklies like, you know, Time, without being told that we all needed to be resilient and everybody needs to be resilient. The economy needs to be resilient. And I remember thinking, wow, does anyone actually know what this word means? <laughs> um, I'm a curious type, you know. And um, so I ended up going to Philadelphia because they, at the time, back in 2009, they were running the um, the most advanced academic department researching resilience. And, you know, who had it? Was it possible to build it? Could we train other people in it? So essentially, good place to start. What is it? It is this capacity that we have to get through tough times. And I like to think, learn from them too. Mm. So you do have to have the presence of some form of adversity to be resilient. But I think it's really important that people understand that it's a capacity, it's a ability, it's a whole load of different ways of thinking and acting. And it's also about your internal resources, but also your external resources. I think too often people think that resilience is a kind of a fixed trait that you either have or you don't have. Um, and that's not true because the research shows and our real life experience, all of us shows that, you know, we can learn more about ourselves and we can learn to think and act in ways that help us get through tough times, you know, in a more supported way. And we can make external connections that help us navigate that stuff. point. I love that because so many people look at others and say, why are they doing so well? And I'm not. So you can learn tools. Yeah, absolutely. You can. Um, and it's good to learn them. We always say to people, you know, learn them um, on the sunny days so that when the rainy days hit, mm -hmm. you, you're a little bit better prepared. So I had been doing, as you say, I'd been doing this. I, I did my master's in Philadelphia and then I had come back to Christchurch, my adopted hometown in the South Island of New Zealand. And I was just starting on my own doctoral research here when the Christchurch earthquakes hit. So that was my first really big experience of living in um, what is kind of similar to a pandemic. You know, when your world is turned upside down and everybody in the same community is going through the same tough times as you. And it takes a long time to come back from it. Yeah, I so remember I had, being there and seeing all the damage and the damage to the cathedral. And it was actually years afterwards. Years later. We've just yeah. had the 10th anniversary of the the really biggest earthquake that killed 195 people um, just this week, just on Monday this week. So um, it has taken a long time to rebuild. 
But um, going back to your question, my I did a lot of work in that post-quake environment in the communities, just helping people understand what are the ways of thinking and acting that can help you get back on your feet when you're when we're in that post-quake period. And in truth, I thought that that was my calling, you know, my moment to put all that training to good use. But sadly, as you said in your introduction, Susan, um, I, in 2014, a few years later, we hit personal tragedy and it was a public holiday weekend in June and we were planning three families to go further down to the very sort of further south of the South Island. And um, we were going to do some walking and mountain biking, had a beautiful long weekend planned. And at the last minute, my Iowa 12-year-old daughter, Abby, said, oh, can I hop down, hop in the car with Ella and drive down with her and her family? So Ella was her best friend, also 12, and Ella's mum, Sally, um, was a really dear friend of mine. So they travelled down there separately to us, and on the way down, a driver sped through a stop sign without stopping and crashed into their car and killed all three of them. So, so you know, I literally go from being this academic, um, training others to be resilient to, as many of your listeners will know, to, you know, waking up in a world I don't recognise, I don't want to live in, and I, yeah, you know, really starting to wonder if we could go forward from here and how we would go forward from here. Okay, so, wow, what was your first step? And how did you pull yourself up by the bootstraps? Did you apply what you knew, or what was what was the moment when you knew something has to change? Um, so, somewhat oddly. Um, I don't, I don't quite know how I feel about this. I, I knew that in the moment the policeman told us. Um, I, I literally remember sitting on the floor of this um, beautiful lodge, the policeman telling us that in which case, you know, we had identified what she was wearing and that was Abby that had died. Um, and I remember thinking, right, um, okay, that is now our life path has split. We are now going to live a very, very different life. Mm -hmm. And I am going to have to get on with that and steer us all through this. And so I think for me, we see in the research that, um, that the people who do manage to navigate loss, um, successfully it's not really the word I want to choose but you know those who manage to get themselves through it very often have what we would call a survivor's mission mm -hmm. and I realize for me that that survivor's mission Suzanne came in that moment you know I literally remember seeing like I could see this life path splitting in our in my head and thinking right here we go then, you know, we don't have a choice. We have to move forward and we, yeah, we have to 
get on with it. Well, so, you, in fact, I listened today to a video you made just one year after this this awful accident, and you described it as literally seeing a vision in your mind of a fork in the road. And yeah. you say, we don't have a choice. Yes, you have to move forward. But then that's where the fork comes, right? Yes. and um, But it is one of the kind of myths. There are so many myths about bereavement. And I think grief is pervaded with choice, you know. Um, I'm a great um, follower of Tom Attig, who's one of the uh, foremost researchers in the field and he's been looking into grief and bereavement for in 30 40 years now um so he's one of the most experienced and revered researchers and he distinguishes between grief reaction which is your absolute kind of you're physical and you're emotional and you're feeling sick and you're crying and your heart aches reaction over which you have no choice mm -hmm. and your grief response which is pervaded with choice so the way that you respond over time we do have many more choices in those kind of micro moments of our days and nights about the ways of thinking and acting that we choose to put into place and for me this is where this whole field of resilience psychology comes in because this was my training and yes. I you know I had all these tools these ways of thinking and acting at my disposal and I would freely acknowledge that I had my doubts at the beginning whether they would be useful and effective and relevant when faced with particularly parental bereavement which we know to be you know, pretty much the hardest form of grief. Um, so I have my doubts, but I was really determined to become, I guess, something of a self-experiment, you know, to see mm -hmm. what of my training and what of that research, those studies, the theories was helpful to me now. Wow. So I have in my hand here your wonderful book. It's called Resilient Grieving, Finding Strength and Embracing Life After a Loss That Changes Everything. So filled with tools and wisdom. The term resilient grieving, where does that come from? Yeah, that's, well, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Very uh, good. It, you know, well, and yes and no, you know, I, um, it is to me, I'm an, I'm, a, I'm an academic by heart, really. I heard you call yourself a pracademic. Yes, we're practicing academics. We call ourselves a pracademic so, and practical academics. I think that is what we aim to be at the Institute um, where I work. And so, um, yeah, I, I absolutely, the, the term is kind of what I would say sort of academically important to me because it is resilience research combined with the context of grief. So that is why I call it resilient grieving. Um, I sometimes have worried over the four or five years, four years since I wrote that book about um, whether it would make people who hadn't read it, but just were picking up the title or listening to the concept of resilient grieving, whether it would make them think, ah, oh, you know, th that I have to tough it out or it, it puts more pressure and burden on them. And mm -hmm. it, it absolutely isn't that, you know, anyone who's read my book always says to me, um, 
thank you for giving me permission to find my own way to grieve. Um, and but mainly for giving me hope. And that's, I what know- I, that's what I find looking at it. And that's why I'm so happy to have you on the Messages of Hope show, because that's what you're giving people here. Yeah, and that is, um, I get a, I get an amazing amount of feedback from people all over the world. Um, I'm so privileged to get it. So people who have either read my book and it's published in you know many countries now, or people who have watched my TED talk, which um, really went viral last year, but yes. I guess of COVID. Um, and then we have a new coping with loss online course for helping professionals. And I also should say to your listeners, there's a course, I have a eight part course, I think it is on Insight Timer that I recorded um, in March and or April last year, right, you know, quite at the beginning of COVID. Um, and so what I get from people is they come back to say to me, firstly, thank you for giving me hope, um, but when all, it feels like all hope was lost, but also for validating my their experiences. I think people are so often given a hopeless prescription when they are bereaved. And actually, most people get through grief. They manage to cope with loss without needing medical intervention or clinical counselling. Only 10% of people get what we would call complicated grief when they really do need some kind of formal help, whether that's medication or counselling. And so, you know, that is my first message of hope to your listeners, is that I've read all the research and I can tell you that really most people get through grief using very ordinary processes like leaning on your friend, going to bed when you really can't cope anymore and being kind to yourself and giving yourself a break um, and finding little things to laugh about and enjoy in those moments between the despair and misery that, of course, grief brings. So, You know, most of all, I want people to understand that you can get through this and you just need to be brave enough to reach out to others and accept the help that you're no doubt being offered and take time and find your own way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know. When I use messages of hope, one of the forms, the way I, of course, in my work as a medium, give people hope is by showing them there's a greater reality. But that only takes care of that one part of us that needs to know our loved ones are still with us. But you take care of the whole human side with your work here. And you found that after Abby died, you found that the standard bereavement literature and resources weren't helpful. Would you talk Mm -hmm. about that? Yes, I'd be delighted to, Suzanne, because I was so frustrated that within really the first, I think it was within the first three days of Abby, Ella and Sally dying, that we, somehow the messages filtered through to me that we were now prime candidates for divorce, 
mental illness and family estrangement. And I remember thinking, wow, thanks for that. I thought my life was already pretty bad. Thank you for your absolutely hopeless, helpless, you know, prescription for us. Somebody came and told us, one of the kind of official people um, came and said to us, you need to write off five years of your life to grief. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I remember just thinking, I haven't got time for that. I've got two beautiful teenage boys in the house um, and they need me now. So I have never tried to avoid grieving. You know, I've always gone to bed when I've needed to and cried when I've needed to. But I absolutely believe that um, you don't need to write off five years to your life of your life to grief. Um, And so when I started digging, because I became really curious to find out actually what is going on here, that these um, really awful um, predictions are being made. So first, the first thing I discovered is that that is not true. That most, yeah. So first, most people do not, particularly bereaved parents, most bereaved parents do not get divorced. That is just not true. Most people also don't go through the five stages of grief. So if you are out there listening and you feel like you're not grieving properly, she puts an inverted, you know, punctuation yeah, mark, yes, mark yes. Here, then please don't um, worry about that because actually... The evidence shows that grief is as individual as your fingerprint. I'm we so don't... glad you say that because I remember when Susan passed, I was saying, well, there's the anger and there's the depression. So now I still have to go through those other stages. But now I'm back here. <laughs> yeah. And so what makes me really frustrated and nowadays kind of cross about it is that um it's firstly, that's really passive, isn't it? Saying this is what's going to happen to you. Yes, yes. And, and I'm like, I want to, I want to be an active participant in my grieving process. I want to know that I'm doing everything I possibly can to help me adapt over time to Abby's loss. And so, I, you know, I want to do. I think particularly if you lose. When you lose someone, you feel so powerless, don't you? That in all of my work, what I want to give the bereaved is some some tools, some ways of thinking and acting that make them feel that they've got a little bit of control and power back into their lives. So um, the five-stage model has been discredited by scientific research. Um, People don't grieve in stages, and grief is as individual as your fingerprint. We also know that... Anybody who's lost someone will know that it's far more complex than that, isn't it? You don't mm-hmm. just go through those neat stages. Some people don't go through any of, you know, they miss some of those stages. So I never felt angry. Um, I never felt any anger against the driver. And what really makes me cross about the, this perpetuation of the five-stage model is that professionals report to us that mourners are made to feel bad for not going through those stages. So, you know, they're actually causing more harm than good. And I know that um, I read somewhere once that one of the main reasons people go to grief counselling is they don't think they're grieving right because they're not going through the five stages. Oh, my goodness. 
I know. So time to retire the five stages. Um, at some point today, we can talk about other theories that I think are more helpful. And the um, three steps that you shared in your TED Talk are just fantastic. I hope we'll get to them. But if we don't, people can find that online. Yeah. Um, and I think um, so there's you know a couple of other myths I just want to um, get rid of now. As Why well. don't you? This is great. Oh, we have yeah three minutes to the break. So go as much okay. as you can. Um, firstly, that if you aren't um, exhibiting significant distress following a loss, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. Some people, for whatever reason, it might be about your relationship with those who have passed, but sometimes you don't cry and you might not feel, you know, you might not exhibit all of those kind of symptoms of grief. That was very true of my teenage boys. They're teenage boys. They didn't want to cry all the time. They wanted to get back. To normality. So not outwardly grieving doesn't mean you're likely to experience delayed grief afterwards. It won't necessarily come back and bite you like I was told. Mm -hmm. um, and the other is that positive emotions and experiences are very much part of grieving. That's okay. And experiencing them also doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. Or that you didn't love your loved one enough. Exactly. Absolutely. So I think those are the real myths that I want to dispel. And I hope that your listeners can really take heart from the fact that, you know, if you still think of your loved one and that makes you smile, there's nothing wrong with that. That's entirely normal. I love it. I love it. Wow. Let me see. So we, we're talking with... Dr. Lucy Hone about resilient grieving. And we're coming up to a break, but when we come back, I'd love if you share with us some of the practical steps you've come up with. And let me see, with one minute to go, would you talk about a term I'd never heard before, oscillation theory? Yes, so it's a good time to talk about it. Um, um, in a nutshell, this is the theory that I love on grief, is that actually it's really helpful for us to kind of approach our grief you know some days you feel like you can kind of just dip your toe in a little bit other days you can really face it full on and then you need to withdraw and that is actually a really good way of grieving to approach it to consider it to feel the pain to walk right through all those negative emotions and then extract yourself distract yourself find something that will take your mind off it go to bed collapse whatever you need to do but i love this kind of ebb and flow of and oscillation flow. theory ebb and, and flow and that's okay approach and withdraw i love it so you don't have to be in it all the time come no. on back after our three minute break we have a lot more good stuff to share with you
Human Design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum Human Design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Lucy Hoon as much as I am. You can tell from the minute she opens her mouth, this is a woman that knows what she knows and has a wonderful way of sharing it. And we're talking about resilient grieving, how to to face your grieving head on with strategies. And one of those that really, really spoke to me that applies to everything is this one question, Lucy, that you shared when you're faced with a choice from moment to moment about helping or harming. Would you talk about that? Yes, um, this has, it was a game changer for me after um, our daughter died. And I do feel so blessed to have been trained to ask myself this question. So um, put simply, it works like this. You find yourself doing something like perhaps scrolling through Instagram late at night, looking at my daughter's friend's Instagram pictures. And I've been trained to ask myself, really, Lucy, is what you are doing helping or harming you in your quest to get through this, to get a good night's sleep, to um, learn to live without Abby? And so as you say, Suzanne, it is, it's a short question, it's evidence-based, it's practical, it's available to us all, it can be applied to so many different contexts of our life. You know, yeah. I often ask myself as I reach for the third oh. or fourth glass of wine, Lucy, is this helping or is this harming you? Exactly. And the thing about this is, okay, looking through old photos, it doesn't mean you don't look at them, right? This is so true. And so because, of course, sometimes looking through old photos is exactly what I want to do. And I want to have a kind of timed wallow and stay in that moment. But it puts you, um, it allows you to detect the tipping point Mm-hmm. at which it is suddenly harming you when you're starting to feel you know miserable or- and helpless and 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 you know I'm not anti feeling miserable because because absolutely you cannot grieve without experiencing um you know tears and pain and suffering but there are times when that isn't helpful so it just puts asking yourself is what I'm doing the way I think I am thinking the way I am acting, helping or harming me in my quest to get through this or to get that job promotion or to 
restore that relationship with a family member that's so important that but frankly at the moment is on the brink asking yourself that question puts you in the driver seat and i think it gives us a little bit of it kind of we're backing ourselves to know when when it's good and when it's bad and it is you know when as the world went you know um into lockdown last February and March, and we all felt that terrible sense of overwhelm, that all of this was just too much, and how were we going to cope with the uncertainty and the enormity of what was happening? It is my go-to question, you know, is having these news notifications, for instance, pinging on my phone all day, is that helping me or is it harming me? It's definitely harming me, so I'm going to turn them off. Um, is going for a walk, getting outside, walking away from my computer, helping or harming me. It's helping me, so I'm going to do that. Um, so, um, and of course, it's different for everyone. And I think I write in the book about the fact that after Abby died, we were given an opportunity to go through a restorative justice process with the driver who killed her. And I thought to myself, okay, will that help me or will it harm me? For me, I didn't want to, I wanted to keep him as a kind of small part of the story. So I decided not to meet with him. But my husband, using the same question, decided that actually that would help him. So he decided to meet with the driver and spent a good couple of hours with the driver. So I think that demonstrates how um, its effectiveness as well and its adaptability. Wow. And that was one of the three strategies you shared in your TED Talk, wasn't it? It was the first yeah. one that got my um, attention. Will you share with us the other two? Yes. So the, the first one, the all important really one, um, is that life is suffering. You know, everybody struggles and suffers. Adversity doesn't discriminate. It happens to people like you, people like me, to all of your listeners, no doubt, have had to struggle through things at some point in their life. That is usual. That is common. Suffering is universal. And the reason I make this point is that I am horrified to see that we live in a world now where people think the very opposite is true. You know, we you've but only got. Could I interrupt a second there? Because I heard you say life is suffering. Mm. I would say life includes suffering. Yes, I would say life includes suffering. Um, and I think it um, life is suffering probably comes from. Um, I think I've probably got that wording from um, some kind of Buddhism along yeah. the <laughs> along the lines, and um, along the way at some point. Um, life contains suffering. It isn't always suffering. But I think it is really important that as parents and grandparents and friends and family and colleagues and team leaders at work, that we actually stop pretending that life is meant to be perfect, That's that right. we're meant to be happy all the time, and that it's our birthright to have this perfect kind of Instagram-like life, because that's just not true and, and not when, And then when something happens to us and pulls up the legs out from under us, we say, what did we do wrong? What's wrong with us? What did, what's, why? You know, why me? Yeah. Why me? And, and this was why this was so important 
for me, but because I'd had this training and I'd looked at all of the kind of self-compassion research and I knew that suffering is universal, I I never thought, why me? In fact, my husband Trevor and I used to have discussions around the fact that why not us? You know, as if we would be privileged and stupid enough to think that we're above Mm. suffering or above something so terrible happening. So I think it does prevent you from feeling discriminated against when something awful happens. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a longer way of explaining um, that life contains suffering, which is the first point of my TED Talk. The second is that... We see in the literature that resilient people have a habit of being really careful over where they focus their attention. They're really selective and careful with this. And so what we see is that they typically are able to focus their attention on the things that they can change and somehow accept the things that they can't change. That's the and serenity so, prayer. <laughs> it is the serenity prayer. And anybody who follows, you know, and closely and puts that prayer to their heart will know that that is not always easy to do. But if you combine it with the third step of, and is what I'm doing helping or harming me, it does give you a pretty powerful roadmap for thinking Okay, this is where I'm focusing my attention right now. So for me, let me give you an example. Um, Straight after the girls died, I could have focused all of my attention on the driver. And instead, I remember thinking, that was an accident. That was his mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. I want to choose life, not death. Hmm. I just had this voice in my head saying, Don't lose what you have to what you have lost. And we have two beautiful boys, you know, who were 14 and 15 at the time. They're now nearly 23 and 21. And I was just determined to be there for them. And so I very determinedly, continually focused my attention on the things that I could influence, could change and that I did have the good that I did have. Um, And that is a pretty powerful prescription. And like I say, it requires some bloody natured tenacity at times. And mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. And mindfulness. And that is a really, you know, I think that is a a very important part, you know, as thinking, I'm just going to stay here in the now and notice what I do have and what's good. So we were talking on the break that you have some things you can share with us about continuing the bonds and how do we memorialize our loved ones who've passed? Yeah, I'd love to because I think it is particularly important um, at this time in our lives, you know, in late February 2021, when so many people are suffering losses And so many people are still in lockdowns and just not able to um, mourn their loved ones in the way that they would normally want to and be able to. So in the absence of being able to do that, I think it's really helpful for us to realise two important aspects of resilient grieving that I want to share with you. So the first is 
um, that this it's called continuing bonds theory. And many years ago, and um, lots of your listeners who are my, are my age will remember, you know, I'm early 50s. I remember that when we were when I was little, if someone died, you weren't really allowed to kind of talk about them. And um, and sometimes their photos were put away and it was all very kind of Victorian and British stiff upper lip and kind of, you know, hush hush about the those who had died. And yet the research shows now that the people who manage to kind of get through a loss are the people who manage to create a ongoing relationship with those that have passed. So, and, and I can tell you that that is something we talk about some often in our show, because I'm a medium, where we continue to actually get signs from our loved ones who have passed that when we talk to them, it's not just for our own grief, but because they really are with us. Oh, it's so good. So good. And, <laughs> and, and so I want to suggest, you know, absolutely build on, on what you're already saying clearly and say, and you can do so in so many different ways. You know, I often go and gather foliage from the um, hedgerows on my walks because that's what Sally always did. And I love the fact that I bring it home and mm -hmm. I put it in a jam jar and I tie some sort of string around it just as she would have done. Mm -hmm. And it makes me feel close to her. And when I bake my mother's, my mother died in the year 2000. And when I bake her almond cake, I, you know, I, she's with me. And when I make ratatouille and I put rosemary in it, I, she's right there with me. And so I love, there's now so much research around the importance of rituals for grieving. And so I, you know, I just want to encourage your listeners, which you obviously always do, to find the ways that work for you, your ways of remembering them and thinking about them and keeping them close to you, even though you can't physically, you know, touch and see them any longer. Beautiful. So here you are sharing with others these strategies and ways to to deal with their grieving with strength. And I'm curious how your husband Trevor has dealt with this has have you do you sit and do you share these ideas with him or has it worked for him yeah it's such a I'm kind of laughing the thought of me sharing these ideas with him over a cup of coffee he's a sort of big burly builder and he'd be like oh really sorry um <laughs> that's what I was curious about yeah but of course um to be fair we we walk our dogs together every morning and every night and um what kind we, of dogs terrible annoying jack russells terriers <laughs> um, which is why we walk them morning and night because if we don't walk them twice a day then we absolutely pay for it but uh, you know we do of course talk all this um we talk through how we feel and our um, relationship with abby and he has followed my professional career of course with those walks for the past um 12 years as I've been involved in resilience and exploring it so so yes we do he is um he understands what helping and harming means he understands about choosing where he focuses attention and mm -hmm. being great what his big thing after Abby died was he said I'm going to stop sweating 
the small stuff with our boys. He said, I am never going to pester them about picking up their towel from the floor any longer. <laughs> and sure enough, they've learned to do that all on their own at some point. Um, so, yeah, we we um, we have been huge support for each other. And I think one of the reasons that that bereaved parents don't separate is that he's truly the only person who knows how I feel. Mm. We, have, you know, such that that common bond that we share of her loss. Yes. Um, other people might get close, but no one is like Trevor. She didn't mean, you know, she meant the same to him as she does to me. Of course. You've, you've talked publicly before about the need to take care of yourself when you're grieving, and you even use the example of walking your dogs on the beach. There are some times when you just couldn't stand to be just the two of you alone in your grief, and you would call friends and say, hey, any of you available, come out and walk with us. Would you expand some more about uh, your responsibility to take care of yourself? Yes, it's um, and it's such a tough thing to do, isn't it? When really so often all you want to do is just curl up into a ball. Um, I think I was lucky because I had the boys to attend to. And so I had to get up and, you know, be around for breakfast in the morning and drive them to school sometimes or the bus or something. Mm -hmm. Um but it is, um, and I think, you know, particularly relating to this moment in time when COVID is still dragging on and as much as people are being vaccinated now, you know, everything is not going to go straight back to normal within the next three months. So I would really urge people that either when you're facing bereavement or when you are just facing challenging, uncertain times, such as we are right now, you have to have a recovery plan. You know, you've got to have a personal plan in place that helps you um, equip you for the marathon, not a sprint, you know, mm -hmm. that will enable you to go the distance. So um, for us, it has always been about just kind of getting up and walking those dogs and getting a cup of coffee and putting a little bit of kind of routine in place. So, reaching so out. You, I've heard you talk about your recovery routine. Is that the same thing? Recovery. Yeah. Plan? And that is, and, yeah, exactly. And, and it is, it came out of the earthquake work that I did as well is that one of the lessons that that taught me is that the more you can put a routine in place, the better that is for your brain, particularly if you've suffered a traumatic loss, because it tells the routine um, actions that you go through, tell your brain that the time for fight or flight, the threat response mm -hmm. is over mm -hmm. and it's okay to start getting back to normal. So um, routines are important. But also, you know, a recovery plan where you do get out, get moving, connect with friends, um, do something meaningful. If you are grieving, you know, develop a kind of daily ritual of lighting a candle or looking through a photo, a few photos, something that's helping you and not harming you. Developing whatever the routine is for you really will help your recovery. Beautiful. So Abby passed in 2014. You've been sharing all of these tools. Do you still have moments where those waves of grief hit? 
Yes, um, yes, uh, of course I do. Um, I went to do some work last night as a fundraiser. We um, we did a sort of community presentation um, and it was about a boy who'd been paralysed. And I found myself um, talking to him, thinking about him and thinking he's paralysed, but he's still alive. We never got that moment with Abby. You know, and, and while it's probably not healthy to do comparison, for me, it was just a grieving moment. You know, I just walked away for a moment and thought, deep breath, you know, took some deep breaths. Yeah, so that was my question. What do you do? What do you do when that hits the deep breath? Yeah. Yes. Um, I will, so what I have really learned to do is walk through all emotions. And so if I want to cry, if something makes me cry, I will cry. Um, and Suzanne, I've been amazed to learn that, you know, letting myself cry, I normally only cry for about 20, 30 seconds. I think sometimes we are fearful mm. of mm. succumbing to grief because we think it will absolutely swallow us up. So, you know, that is not true. Walk, walk through all your emotions and know that emotions are there for a purpose. So, you know, it's okay to cry. So, yes, I do cry. And I can't quite remember when, but I know I've really cried. Oh, I cried about Abby the other weekend because I was clearing out the garage and I came across some of her things and I kind of knew I needed to deal with them. And then I found um, some of uh, Paddy's old wetsuit from when he was about nine, her older brother, and he was leaving home the next day to go back to uni. And I suddenly found myself with my head on the table sobbing. And I thought, that's okay. You know, it's because I'm upset about him going, that's all natural. Um, and I was, you know, grieving of all of their youth and all parents have to grieve their children leaving home and it's bloody miserable. <laughs> But it's also so healthy what you're sharing because there may be this, I think you call them thinking traps, where people yeah. say, okay, I'm past the grief. I don't have to cry like that anymore. Yes, and sadly, um, I also write about the grief hijack because I think um, grief does come and hijack us sometimes. You know, when you're least expecting it, you suddenly get those moments. And so I want that's what I want to say to people is that that's okay. That is normal. And what you generally find is that over with the passing of time, those grief hijacks become less frequent mm -hmm. and they are scary and you do feel hijacked. You feel like you've got no choice. This whole wave of grief has come and completely consumed you. And it is embarrassing and it is awkward, but it's only embarrassing, awkward and grief. I mean, we are humans. We're allowed to cry. And if you have lost something or someone, the most natural thing in the world is to cry about it and to feel miserable. So give yourself a break. Be a bit kind. I'm a great believer in um, Kristen, Met, um, Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. Mm -hmm. You know, be kind to yourself. So I do use her three-step of self-compassion a lot, which is to say, this is a moment of suffering I am not alone. Everybody struggles and suffers. What do I need to do to be kind to myself right now? Nice. So that would be an example of positive emotions in grief. Well, actually, you know, sometimes when they're negative emotions and I feel like, or I just, you know, feel overwhelmed, I've said something wrong, I've done something awful and I'm feeling kind of really wound up, I'll just say to myself, just hold on a minute. Yep, you've, you've, you've screwed up here, something's gone wrong, you are suffering. 
everybody suffers. What do you need to do to be kind to yourself right now? Give yourself a break, you know, just take stock and don't beat yourself up because um, Neff's work, her, her research shows that most people are much kinder to other people oh, yes. than they are to themselves. And we need to give ourselves a break, you know, and be kind. So that's probably my kind of, you know, final message to your listeners is don't be so hard on yourself. You know, give yourself time and believe you will find a way. That's beautiful. But you're not off the hook yet because we do have a couple minutes left. And you've been sharing all along what your research has shown you, but also what Abby's loss has taught you. Could you summarize just focusing on that that yeah. transformational moment in your life, what Abby's passing has taught you? Yeah, and I really, I was talking earlier on, you mentioned legacies. And I think, you know, that's the other thing I'd love your listeners to do, that if you have lost someone, sit down with a pen and paper or have a conversation with a, somebody else who's close to you and just think for a minute, what has this person taught you? What is their legacy? So my, um, Abby's legacy to me is that life is wild and precious. You know, it's beautiful. It's unpredictable. You have to get what you can out of it while you're alive. You have to give what you can to it and others while you are alive and we have to learn to live with uncertainty and vulnerability and I truly have had to do that but I guess my most important learning is that you can live with grief and I'm still living with grief and I always will but I can live at the same time. You know, you can live and grieve simultaneously. It's not always pretty. It's not what I wanted. I wish she was with us now. But I'm determined to carry on her legacy. And I hope that all the work I do means that little Abby Hone's impact on this world is continuing today you know she's still having an impact and that is important for me without a doubt there's no doubt that that you are turning her passing into that's your legacy to the world something a positive you started this show by saying you get through the tough times and learn from them and now we're all learning from your tough times and lucy i thank you so much Thank you so much, Suzanne. And to everybody listening, we'd say kia kaha, which means take care in Māori from New Zealand. Fantastic. Everybody go out and have a great week. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. 
just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.